Hey everyone, this is Christopher Holtwick, and I am part of Ideas Marketing and Technology team. Welcome back to a new episode of Ideas Listen and Learn CEC podcast, the fitness industry's first and only audible CEC program. If this is your first time listening, here's how it works. In this episode, I'm going to read you 23 evidence-based news stories that will bring you up to date on fitness trends, exercise research, and the dynamic fields of diet, food, nutrition, and behavior change science. This episode contains information that has been approved for one CEC by more than 25 approval agencies, including ACE, NASM, AFA, ACSM, and NFPT. In order to claim your CEC, you will need to pass a short quiz, which is available for purchase in the IDS store. Look for the link to the quiz in the show notes. To thank you for listening, at the end of the episode, I'll provide you with a coupon code to get 20% off the quiz. IdeaFit Plus members can access this and all CEC quizzes and courses free of charge. Research has shown that physical activity increases comprehension. So whether you're out for a run, working out, or just doing the dishes, we encourage you to move while you listen and learn. Let's get started. First, I will read 10 articles from our headline section that were researched by our colleague and award-winning contributing editor, Shirley Archer Eichenberger. These were originally published in the April 2021 edition of Fitness Journal Sprint. In addition to the link in the show notes, the articles and the quiz can also be found at ideafit.com under the Articles tab. Article 1. Benefits of Exercise Bursts Motivate clients who prefer short workouts with good news about the health benefits of training harder. Harvard Medical School researchers found that approximately 12 minutes of vigorous aerobic exercise can positively alter biomarkers linked with heart disease, diabetes, and shorter longevity. The scientists were struck by the effects a brief bout of exercise can have on the circulating levels of metabolites that govern such key bodily functions as insulin resistance, oxidative stress, vascular reactivity, inflammation, and longevity, said principal investigator and study author Gregory Lewis, MD, head of the heart failure section at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Investigators analyzed data from 411 middle-aged women and men enrolled in the Farmingham Heart Study. This study began in 1948 and now includes three generations of participants. We're starting to better understand the molecular underpinnings of how exercise affects the body and use that knowledge to understand the metabolic architecture around exercise response patterns, said study author Ravi Shaw, MD, in the Division of Cardiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Article 2. Does time of day affect training? So, does time of day influence exercise performance? Yes, research finds. And strategies inspired by scientific findings may mitigate adverse impacts. In 2020, An international group of researchers reviewed 66 studies on maximal exercise and time of day. The literature had already shown that time of day could reduce endurance performance by as much as 26% and strength performance as much as 41%. However, all-out efforts require both strength and endurance. This large review found that short-duration maximal exercise performance, less than one minute of all-out sprints, maximal jumps, or isometric contractions, is most effective between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. under neutral climate conditions. Experts suggest adopting these strategies to improve morning performance and minimize time-of-day effects. Play music. 
Do a 10-minute warm-up while listening with headphones to neutral or self-motivating high-tempo tunes greater than 120 to 140 beats per minute. Warm-up. Do an active warm-up with 12 to 15 minutes of moderate intensity pedaling or other aerobic activity. Mix in a few 5-second sprint intervals. Expose your body to warm temperatures. If possible, influence muscle temperature by exposing your body to warm, humid conditions for 60 minutes before exercise. Aim for 82.6 to 85.1 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 28.1 to 29.5 degrees Celsius and 62.6% to 74% relative humidity. Fast intermittently. Practice two to four weeks of intermittent fasting for 15 to 16 hours per day. Stimulate adaptation. Consistently train in the morning for at least five weeks. The study was published in the Nature Research Journal, Scientific Reports. Article three, optimize women's strength training. A new research review sheds light on how monthly hormonal changes influence the risk of muscle damage in women. The findings provide insight in how trainers can modify a strength conditioning program depending on which phase of her cycle a female client is in. Published in the Journal of Strength Conditioning and Research, the review suggests that a woman's natural changes in hormone levels during her monthly cycle can affect her risk of incurring exercise-induced muscle damage in the form of delayed onset muscle soreness and strength loss. Study authors recommend that trainers consider using lower training loads or longer recovery intervals in the early follicular phase, day one of period to day nine, when hormone concentrations are lower and women may be more vulnerable to muscle damage. Strength training loads can then be increased in the midluteal phase, days 18 to 23, when injury risks are lower. Note that this is based on a 28-day cycle. Article 4. Does exercise make illness more likely? Have you heard claims that strenuous exercise could suppress the immune system and increase infection risks, particularly when conducted over prolonged periods? A lot of fitness professionals have. An international group of researchers analyzed that assessment in a debate article in Exercise Immunology Review. James Turner, PhD, and John Campbell, PhD, exercise physiologists from the University of Bath in England, are leading opponents of the hypothesis and maintain that exercise is beneficial for immune function. A research review does show that those who exercise at levels far above the health recommendations, for example, high-performance athletes and elite military groups, experience a greater risk of infection, along with alternations to immune biomarkers. However, Campbell and Turner note that these changes are strongly influenced by non-exercise factors like genetics, nutritional status, stress, sleep disruption, and more. Researchers both for and against the hypothesis that arduous exercise could suppress the immune system agree that infection susceptibility is multifactorial. Turner and Campbell urge people not to fear that exercise will suppress the immune system, placing them at increased risks of COVID-19. Instead, the researchers encourage people to stay fit and physically active while following government guidelines for health and safety. Article 5. High Genetic Propensity in ACL Ruptures When you assess clients, consider asking them whether near relatives have suffered from anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL tears. The risk of an ACL tear may be highly influenced by genetic predisposition, according to a study reported in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Advanced knowledge can help form effective individualized prevention programs. Typical risk factors for an ACL injury 
include playing on surfaces with high friction, choice of footwear, speed, and pivoting. ACL ruptures are also linked to genetic characteristics such as knee malalignment, joint laxity, and bone geometry. Researchers from Lund University in Sweden reviewed data from 88,414 twins to assess ACL injury incidents. Data analysis indicated an overall genetic contribution of 69% for ACL rupture risk heritability for men and women. For context, eye color heritability is 98% and cancer heritability is reported to be around 33%. Article 6. New wearables can measure body chemistry. A new wearable tracker developed by researchers at North Carolina State University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill can measure in almost real time multiple metabolic markers, formerly measurable only in a lab. The device is the size of an average watch, but contains analytical equipment equivalent to four of the bulky electrochemistry devices currently used to measure metabolite levels in the lab, said study author Michael Daniel, PhD. For this proof of concept study, we tested sweat from human participants and monitored for glucose, lactate, pH, and temperature. The device has a replaceable strip embedded with chemical sensors. When the strip comes into contact with skin, it analyzes data from sweat and then transmits the information to a smartphone or smartwatch. Potential applications include being used in athletic or military training to detect dehydration, lactate levels, or other health issues. More testing is underway to determine usage under different conditions. The researchers are exploring commercialized options. The study is available in biosensors and bioelectronics. Article 7, Plyometric Jump Training and Volleyball. In volleyball training programs, low-volume plyometric protocols could be as effective as high-volume methods and have less injury risk, according to a study in the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine. An international research group reviewed 14 randomized controlled studies that included healthy volleyball players, without restriction for gender or age, who participated in plyometric jump training called PJT for at least two weeks. PJT programs included lower body jumping, bounding, or hopping. Data analysis showed that the programs improved vertical jump height in all types of volleyball players, even when volume and frequency were relatively low. Study authors noted that lower volume training, for example, 40 jumps per session twice per week, yielded similar improvements to higher volume protocols while reducing injury risk. Lower volume options also left players more training time to dedicate to other aspects of game preparation. Further inquiry is needed to determine the ideal length of a PJT program, but based on available studies, programs shorter than eight weeks are as effective as those longer than eight weeks. Study authors recommend individualizing the training approach based on player position and preparation to sustain PJT loads. Article 8. Exercise in Chronic Low Back Pain for relief, experts say, keep exercising. Research shows the efficacy of exercise in alleviating chronic lower back pain. The mechanisms, however, have remained unclear. Enter Australian researchers from the University of South Wales in Sydney, who analyzed 110 studies. Both in Australia and globally, low back pain is the leading cause of disability and has been for the past few decades, said principal researcher and study author Matt Jones, PhD, an exercise physiologist. Low back pain is associated with a significant burden both for the individual and society through healthcare costs. 
Chronic pain is tricky, and there are a lot of factors that can contribute to it. So it's not simply biological aspects of tissue damage, but there are psychosocial elements at play, as well as things like a person's mood or confidence in their own abilities to do something, said Jones. There have been trends in research over time where everyone focuses on a flavor of the month, like motor control or McKenzie therapy, for example. But because the effects of exercise are broad and it impacts on many different systems in the human body, it's difficult for researchers to pinpoint exactly why they think it might be benefiting people with pain. Read this study in Muscular Skeletal Science and Practice. Article 9. Poor Fitness Levels Linked with Depression and Anxiety Keep promoting the mental health benefits of exercise. People with low levels of aerobic and muscular fitness have a 98% greater risk of depression and a 60% greater risk of anxiety than people with high levels of overall fitness, according to a study published in BMC Medicine. University College London researchers based these findings on data analysis of 152,978 male and female participants ages 40 to 69 in the UK Biobank study. Our findings suggest that encouraging people to exercise more could have extensive public health benefits, improving not only our physical health, but our mental health too, said senior study author Joseph Hayes, PhD. Improving fitness through a combination of cardio exercise and strength and resistance training appears to be more beneficial than just focusing on aerobic or muscular fitness. Article 10. Athletes may conceal injuries. Trainers may want to prioritize cultivating a non-judgmental atmosphere of open communication, particularly when training elite-level athletes to ensure honest conversations about pain and injury. In a study of high-performance rowers in Ireland, researchers noted that many athletes felt compromised by lower back pain but did not feel they could speak openly and honestly about their condition for fear of being excluded from the sport. Many athletes continue to compete and train in pain, potentially putting them at greater risk for poor pain outcomes and heightened negative experiences. A rower's experience of lower back pain can lead to isolation and have a profound impact on the athlete's life beyond the sport. Some rowers, however, reported being in a system where openness was encouraged. They regarded this as leading to better health outcomes. Study authors noted that athletes and support staff should be educated regarding benefits of early disclosure and rowers should be supported to do so without judgment. The research appeared in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. That concludes the readings for headlines. Many thanks to author and contributing editor Shirley Archer Eichenberger for her research and writing. Next up, I will read 13 articles from our Food for Thought news section. These were researched by our colleague Matthew Cady, a registered dietitian and cookbook author who is also a James Beard award-winning journalist. These articles were originally published in the April 2021 edition of Fitness Journal Sprint. In addition to the link in the show notes, the articles in the quiz can be found at ideafit.com under the Articles tab. Article 1. Pandemic Snack Attacks The seemingly never-ending COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on Americans' eating habits, and people who step on a scale may see some startling numbers. In a survey of 2,000 Americans conducted by market research company OnePoll, 76% of respondents say they're eating more during the workday because of their work-at-home proximity to the kitchen. Almost 30% are heading to the fridge more than 10 times a day, a habit that can certainly contribute to excess calorie intake and weight gain. Mindless eating because of boredom, stress, 
or massive amounts of screen time and late night snacking also appears to be on the upswing. Clearly, many people in this new reality need guidance on how to develop better dietary habits when the kitchen is just a few steps away. Article two, meal kits may not always be the right nutrition choice. Meal delivery services like Blue Apron and Purple Carrot help busy people put a meal on the table. During the pandemic, their popularity has ballooned partially because they allow people to limit trips to the grocery store. But how do these meals align with healthy eating goals? To shed light on that question, researchers from the University of Adelaide in Australia reviewed a year's worth of recipes from the popular HelloFresh meal kit service, focusing on the nutritional quality of its recipes and ingredients. HelloFresh meals took an average of about 35 minutes to prepare and were found to be relatively high in calories with a median of 678 calories high in fat with 28 grams, high in protein with 44 grams. Meals were also fairly abundant in sodium, averaging 839 milligrams per meal. The researchers mentioned that adding more vegetables and whole grains or reducing portion sizes could improve the meal's nutrition levels. While different services vary in the nutritional makeup of their recipes, it's important that people understand what they're getting and how to make adjustments if needed. For example, by trimming portion sizes and sneaking in an extra serving of vegetables. Article three, sweet sensations. No wonder it could be hard to pry kids away from the candy store. It's because they require more sugar to detect sweetness than adults do. Research conducted at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and published in Nutrients may have discovered why you hardly ever hear kids and teens bemoan that something is too sweet. Investigators gave participants of various ages sugar water solutions with different levels of sweetness. The scientists then recorded how much sugar participants preferred and noted the lowest concentration they could taste. Compared with adults, children and teens needed 40% more sugar in a solution to detect sweetness and preferred a 50% higher sugar concentration. Given this finding, it's hardly surprising that so many processed foods and drinks marketed to our younger generation are laden with sugar. Unfortunately, the health ramifications aren't as sweet. Article four, tailgating could be a food fumble. A beloved weekend ritual for millions of sports fans, tailgating has become a socially acceptable excuse to wash down piles of greasy food with copious amounts of booze. This stadium parking gluttony must extract a toll on the body, right? Researchers from the University of Missouri School of Medicine set out to score some answers. They examined the effects of an afternoon of heavy tailgating on a group of 18 overweight but generally healthy men. Specifically, the study authors looked at blood tests, liver scans, and a measure of energy expenditure to see how a man's liver and metabolism reacted to excess intakes of alcohol and high-calorie grub. During a five-hour period, participants drank enough to maintain a 0.08 to 1.0 blood alcohol level and consumed food including hamburgers, cupcakes, and chips. On average, each man consumed a whopping 5,087 calories during the five hours. Essentially, the results suggest that different bodies react in different ways to an afternoon of excess. Some men showed higher levels of fat in their liver, while others displayed lower liver fat levels after tailgating meaning some bodies may respond in a unique way to take stress off the liver. Those who ate the most processed carbs during the study 
tended to have higher liver fat levels and lower rates of fat burning. This suggests carbs may have a greater impact on these measures than alcohol. In the big picture, the findings advance the idea that genetics can play a role in health outcomes associated with going overboard on food and alcohol on any given Sunday. Article 5. Smile if you eat salads. 10 out of 10 dentists should approve of eating more veggies. Using dietary recall and periodontal examination data from people enrolled in the U.S. National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey between 2009 and 2014, a team of researchers from Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland found that those who ate the most salads, fruits, and vegetables, and whose drink choice were plain water or tea, experienced lower rates of periodontitis, a form of gum disease that could lead to tooth loss, consuming various nutrients and antioxidants in vegetables and fruits, and avoiding sugary drinks, may lower levels of certain bacteria that inflame the gums, contributing to periodontitis. Article 6. Perfect Pairing Scientists say that carbs and protein can tag team for better recovery. Here's the scoop. Restocking spent glycogen stores is a major part of exercise recovery for endurance athletes. Glycogen is a vital source of energy for working muscles, especially at higher intensities. Evidence suggests that co-ingesting carbohydrate and protein after exercise may stimulate greater glycogen synthesis during recovery than carbohydrate alone. How? The amino acids that make up dietary protein can encourage the pancreas to release more insulin, thereby increasing muscle glucose uptake and, in turn, glycogen production within muscle cells. But there's a catch. As reported in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, this recovery tag team only works to its full potential if protein does not replace any of the energy coming from carbohydrates. This means 100 grams of carbohydrates and 30 grams of protein could stimulate more glycogen synthesis than 70 grams of carbs and 30 grams of protein. So prudent sports nutrition advice for athletes is simply to add protein to their lofty post-workout carbohydrate intake instead of removing carbs to make room for protein calories. Article 7. Mellow Yellow? Urine color reflects hydration levels. It's true. Your pee color is a good indication of how hydrated you are. An investigation in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition has validated that lighter urine color signifies a lower level of urine osmolality, the number of dissolved particles per unit of water in the urine, and is a reliable way to determine hydration status. The goal is to have urine the color of straw or lemonade as opposed to something closer to iced tea. Urinating seven or more times a day for adults, or five times a day for children, was found to be another good indicator that someone is drinking enough to stay ahead of hydration. Article 8. Brewing up a healthier pregnancy. Coffee, and the caffeine that gives it its power, appears to be a drink of concern for moms-to-be. This advice hails from an analysis of observational studies that assessed pregnancy outcomes related to caffeine intake. In all, 48 articles, including 37 previous observational investigations, were included in the review study, and a significant number of the trials found that caffeine intake could indeed increase the risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. Negative pregnancy outcomes included miscarriage, stillbirth, low birth rate, preterm birth, and childhood acute leukemia. 
Chronic exposure to any chemical during pregnancy is a cause for concern, and perhaps caffeine should not be an exception. Although the current review does not prove causation, many studies used in the analysis did identify dose-response associations between caffeine intake and pregnancy outcomes, and some studies found no threshold below which negative outcomes were absent. The report was published in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Currently, many health guidelines for caffeine consumption of pregnant women call for no more than a moderate daily intake, 200 milligrams, the amount of about 12 ounces of coffee. This report suggests pregnant women may want to shoot for even lower levels or perhaps no consumption at all. Keep it in mind that caffeine and other items like caffeinated tea, chocolate, and some sodas also count towards the daily total. Article 9. Back to the Future? Our evolutionary history may define how we should eat. The mismatch hypothesis argues that our bodies evolved to digest foods like our ancestors ate, and that we will struggle to handle unfamiliar foods. In other words, no style of eating is universally bad. Instead, what contributes to obesity and poor health is the mismatch between our evolutionary history and what we're currently eating. While this theory is hard to test directly, the Turkana and pastoralist population in a remote section of Kenya presents a natural experiment. Traditional Turkana still rely on livestock for subsistence, while Turkana who have located to cities have switched to diets that are much higher in carbohydrates and processed foods. As reported in Science Advances, the effect of transitioning away from traditional matched diet relying much more on protein and fat than carbohydrates to an evolutionary mismatched one that is higher in processed carbs has not been good for the health of city-dwelling Turkana. They exhibit poor cardiometabolic health with much higher levels of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular illness, and high blood pressure. The researchers found a cumulative effect the more the Turkana experienced the urban environment and the mismatched style of eating, the worse it was for their health. The key to better metabolic health for all of us may be to align our diet with that of our ancestors, and perhaps the future of personalized diets will help us determine which dietary components matter most. It is likely that if you and I adopted the traditional Turkana diet, our bodies would cry foul. Article 10, Silencing the Sizzle. If you have clients who can't let go of their deep fryers, you could present them with this sobering health news. The journal Heart published a review of 17 different studies involving more than 560,000 people who collectively suffered 37,000 heart attacks and strokes during 10 years of follow-up. The review found that, compared with those who ate the lowest amount of fried foods per week, those who ate the most had a 28% greater risk of a major heart attack or stroke, a 22% higher risk of heart disease, and a 37% higher risk of heart failure. Each additional weekly serving of 114 grams, that's four ounces or about a half a cup of fried foods, increased the risk for heart attack and stroke by 3%, heart disease by 2%, and heart failure by 12%. A typical medium serving of fast food fries is roughly 117 grams. When food is fried, it absorbs a good amount of fat from the frying oil, increasing calories. High temperature cooking, like frying, may also create pro-inflammatory compounds like advanced glycation end products, 
and deep-fried foods may wedge out more nutritious options from the diet, reducing consumption of heart-protective nutrients and antioxidants. While this meta-analysis of studies can only show an association between fried foods and cardiovascular risk, not cause and effect, it certainly makes a platter of chicken nuggets less appetizing. Article 11. 2% is not enough veggies. According to an analysis by the CDC, only 2% of high school students in the U.S. are eating enough vegetables, or 2.5 to 3 cups per day. Intake was low across the board, among boys and girls, and white, black, and Hispanic teens. In more findings that may ring true to parents, just 7.1% of the 13,354 high school students in 33 states involved in the Youth Risk Behavior Surveys were eating the recommended servings of fruit in 2017, down from 8.5% in 2013. The findings aren't necessarily surprising, but they are certainly discouraging as health organizations and parents keep struggling to find effective ways to get teens to eat better. Article 12. Are the dietary guidelines for Americans tough enough? Without much fanfare, the U.S. Departments of Agriculture and Health and Human Services recently released the 2020 to 2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans. The dietary guidelines are updated every five years and are intended to provide science-based guidance to promote healthy eating and reduce cases of chronic disease. Largely consistent with previous editions, the current guide extols the virtues of a dietary pattern rich in vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, nuts, low or non-fat dairy, and seafood, and lower in red and processed meats, refined grains, saturated fats, and sodium. Notably, this is the first addition to include dietary advice specific to pregnant and breastfeeding women, infants, and toddlers under two. However, instead of heeding the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee's recommendation that individuals over two years of age consume less than 6% of total calories from added sugars, the new Dietary Guidelines retain the previous edition's advice to limit added sugars to less than 10% of total calories. Noticing the U.S. obesity epidemic and increasing rates of type 2 diabetes, the advisory committee, consisting of nutrition and medical experts from academic institutions, urged that the daily limit must be lowered in new guidelines. The committee also recommended reducing the guidelines for men's alcohol intake from two drinks to one, but it remains that two drinks or less for men and one drink or less for women. That's a decision that organizations like the Center for Science and the Public Interest called disappointing. The agencies that write the guidelines decided to adopt the committee's proposed changes for sugar and alcohol because there was a view that scientific evidence produced since the last dietary guidelines was not substantial enough to support adjustments. Some are lamenting that guidelines continue to ignore the nuances of culture and ethnicity and how many Americans feed themselves. Ethnic variations have been suggested for years, but with little progress. Article 13, The Sound of Health. Can you hear nutrition cues? Food manufacturers who want consumers to view their healthy products as being, well, healthy, should carefully consider how their brand names roll off the tongue. As reported in Food Quality and Performance, the perception of healthfulness is influenced not just by nutrition, but also by how a product name sounds when spoken. Using fictitious brand names, researchers discovered that certain phenomes present in a name affected whether people viewed a product as healthful or not. A phenome is a unit of sound that distinguishes one word from another in a particular language. 
In particular, phenome sounds with higher frequencies were perceived to be more nourishing than sounds with lower frequencies. The effect was more pronounced for savory foods than sweet items. Sounds like good information for marketers. That marks the end of the reading on Food for Thought. Many thanks to registered dietitian and subject matter expert Matthew Cady for his research and excellent writing of our popular food and nutrition news section. This concludes the education in this episode of the Idea, Listen, and Learn CEC podcast. I'm so happy you joined me for this episode. I appreciate your attention and your dedication to being the best professional you can be. Quick reminder that this education has been approved for one CEC by more than 25 certification agencies. In order to claim the CEC, you will need to pass a short quiz, which is available for purchase in the IDEA store. The link is in the show notes. Use the coupon code APRILSPRINT21, A-P-R-I-L-S-P-R-A-N-T-21 to get 20% off this CEC quiz. And remember that this is completely free for IDEAFIT Plus members. Stay tuned. We have more exciting content that has been approved for CECs coming soon.